Today's scripture reading is from Joshua 3. Joshua 3, verses 1 through 17, which is the whole chapter. And that can be found in your pew Bible on page 209. Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, who are Levites, carrying it, you are to move from, move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gershuites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zaranth, when, while the water flowing down the Sea of Arabath, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry land. May God bless the reading of his word. Morning, everyone. See all of you this morning. Um, When I was in high school, um, it wasn't really a a major thing, but there was a a brief period uh, when I was being picked on and bullied by another student. Um, There was this student who was um, bigger and stronger and taller than me, and no, it wasn't Mitt Romney. But at the time, um, the student was was picking on me, and, and I felt like there wasn't much that I could do. But I had a friend who was a Christian, and uh, he was also happened to be a player on the varsity football team. And so he was a pretty big guy. He was, um, um, yeah, just tall and big, kind of like Mark, Mark Lou. And, and, and there was the time when he was with me, and he saw this guy kind of picking on me. And he went to the guy, and he goes, 
don't mess with him. And he goes, next time you mess with him, I'm going to mess with you. And I'm sure you can imagine just me being there and hearing him say that. Um, you know, gave me a lot of comfort and confidence, uh, knowing that someone bigger and, and more powerful was looking out for me. And after that, um, to be honest, the guy really never picked on me anymore, which was quite a relief to me. And I'm sure all of us, you know, like to have that type of security. For those with little kids, I'm sure you see it a lot. Uh, when my kids were little, when we would go into some unfamiliar place or we would, uh, you know, cross the street, uh, they would just grab our hands. They would grab Millie or my hands uh, before we would cross the street or enter this strange place. Uh, we didn't have to even initiate it. They would just automatically grab our hand and just holding our hand and knowing that someone was with them to help them made them feel, you know, a lot better uh, about whatever situation they were in and, and knowing that one of their parents was leading them and guiding them. And so this is what we're going to touch on this morning as we continue in our series on Joshua. Um, where we're at right now is that Joshua and the Israelites are right at the cusp of entering the promised land. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, um, the Israelites were six miles from the Jordan River. They were six miles east of the Jordan River. And now they have made their way to the river, and they're camping there before crossing over. And so understand, you know, the Israelites, these people, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. You know, before that, they were um, making their way out of, uh, you know, out of slavery from Egypt. And, and before that, they were in bondage for 400 years uh, from slavery in Egypt. But now, you know, they're at a point where they're just about to see God's promise fulfilled. I mean, they could just look across the river and see this land that they were about to inherit. You know, you know, but for them, I'm sure they were just having thoughts like, you know, is this going to really happen? Are we finally going to make it over to the other side? I mean, for us, you know, who are able to read this account in the Bible, I mean, it's easy for us to have confidence in the outcome because we already know what the outcome will be. We can look back in Scripture and in the Bible and, and know the results. But they did not. And remember, too, that the majority of these people... They were born and raised in the desert. I mean, they had heard stories growing up about how God miraculously freed uh, their people from Egyptian captivity and slavery. They had heard from their parents how God miraculously, you know, parted the Red Sea so that they could cross over it. And, and, and even though the Egyptian army was chasing them, they crossed over it. But then when the Egyptian army hit the water, the seas closed and it wiped out the army. You know, they had heard all these stories, but they personally never experienced it. And now they're at a point where even most of their parents who were telling them these stories have died off. Because God promised that their parents would never enter the land for not having the faith 40 years ago to enter it. So how could they really know that God would lead them and guide them? How did they know that God was with them? And so as we look at Joshua 3, we're going to look at how the people, you know, were able to experience the presence and power of God personally. And we find in order to do so that God used a particular object to display these attributes to the people. And that was the Ark of the Covenant. And this chapter, 
if you read it closely, you'll find that the word ark is mentioned six times, or excuse me, nine times in just these 17 verses. And it's referenced at least two more times, showing that, you know, the ark plays a pretty central role in this chapter. Although the Israelites, you know, were promised and, and heard that they would soon enter Canaan, they weren't exactly sure how they were going to get there. So God, at the beginning of chapter 3, uses the ark to confirm his presence amongst them and his assurance that he would guide them. As you heard in, in the scripture reading in verses 2 to 4, if you want to look it over, over again, verses 2 to 4 says, this, After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. So for the Israelites, if they wanted to know where to go, all they had to do was look for the ark, because wherever the ark was, that was where they were supposed to go. And although um, keeping a distance of a thousand yards had some divine relational ramifications, you know, since the ark represented the presence of God and, and the holiness of God, so they couldn't get too close to the ark, it also held a practical purpose in that it enabled the people to see the proper route to go before entering the land. I like how one commentator added that the stipulation of, of keeping the distance presupposes divine familiarity with the land as if, unlike Israel, God had been on this road before. So he knows exactly how to go and where to lead them. And he certainly did as he guided the Israelites through the ark. But there's one other small problem with entering Canaan, and that was this body of water called the Jordan. And how are the people supposed to get across it? You know, we're not talking like this little shallow stream or this little, you know, small pool of water. I mean, this was a major river that the Israelites had to cross. And at the time, there could have been close to two million Israelites they needed to get across the river. So it's not like they could have just all hopped in a boat and rowed to the other side or that they could have just all walked across or swam across. You know, they needed a way to cross the river. But once again, God uses this, the ark to accomplish this purpose, and this time to display his power. In verse 11, Joshua tells the Israelites, See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of, of all the earth? It will go into the Jordan ahead of you. And in verse 13, As soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. And then in verse 17, we see this event actually fulfilled. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So think about this, this happening. I mean, what a sight it must have been for the people to see. These people who had only heard stories about the parting of the Red Sea but never witnessed it now see God's power displayed firsthand in the parting of the Jordan River. When the ark touched the water, the priest being an extension of it, all of a sudden the water separated and the people could walk through it. 
I mean, what security and confidence it must have given the people to experience this, knowing that their God was truly God and he was truly powerful and he would guide them and lead them into the promised land. This is why Joshua could tell the people in verse 10, this is how you will know that the living God will drive out, pe- drive out before you all, the, all these enemies of the land that they were about to inherit. So it's easy to see, I think, from this chapter, the key role that the ark played back then to display the presence and the power of God. And in studying this and in hearing about this, I mean, don't you wish that we could have something like the ark with us today? I mean, for those of us who maybe go play um, Ultimate Frisbee on Sundays, you maybe you go out in the field one day and it was raining Saturday and, and you go out and the ground's all wet, but wouldn't it be cool if you could like like whip out the ark and put the ark in the middle of the field and the waters would just part to the side and you could play frisbee on dry ground? You know, wouldn't it be neat like, yeah, you're having a picnic or something, you could just whip out the ark and all the water would disappear and it would stop raining. Um, you know, for those of, of you who have who were old enough to see the um, the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, you'll remember you know, what awe the, the ark was held in. You know, I remember an actor in the movie asked Indiana Jones, he's like, Jones, do you realize what the ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. And then later on, someone says, the army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And all these things sound good and they probably make for really good movie material, you know, we shouldn't hold the ark up in such high esteem that it becomes some type of like magical good luck, good luck charm. Because actually there is an account in the Bible where the Israelites treated the ark almost like that. Um, there's a story in 1 Samuel 4 where the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. But the Philistines routed the Israelites. They, they killed like 4,000 of their men. And so after the, the battle, the Israelites retreated to their camp and they're like, what's wrong? You know, how come we lost? You know, what happened? And, and they were talking and discussing and, and, they were, and one of them must have surmised, I bet it's because we didn't have the ark with us. And so next time we're going to go out into battle, we're going to bring the ark with us and surely we're going to win. And that's what they did. They brought the, the ark to their camp and when they brought the ark to their camp, Actually, the people were like rejoicing and shouting because they were like so happy. Like, we have the ark now. We're going to win. We're going to wipe out the Philistines. And they were shouting so loud. The account says in 1 Samuel 4 that the Philistines heard their shouting. And they heard that the ark was in their camp. And they got really scared. They're like, oh no, the Israelites, they brought the ark. We're going to die. And so they like just, I don't know, I guess pray to their gods for courage. And they go and attack the Israelites. And you know what happens? The Philistines wipe them out. And they wipe them out even worse than before. Instead of killing just 4,000 men like they did in the first battle, they killed 30,000 of their men. And what's more, they captured the ark. And they held it in their possession. And for the Israelites, the mistake they made was, once again, thinking that this ark was some type of magical orb that they could just use to control victory or defeat. 
But it wasn't the ark itself that was so powerful. The ark was only powerful because of God's presence with it. And the Israelites couldn't just assume that having the ark would guarantee God's powerful presence with them. And it's kind of funny, because if you read on in the next chapter in 1 Samuel 5, you'll see that So the Philistines took the ark, and, and they put it... Uh, they took it to one of the temples of their foreign gods, and they put the ark next to a statue of this foreign god called uh, Dagon. And so they, they, leave, they leave the temple, and then the next morning they go, and the ark's there, but the statue of Dagon has fallen over. And they're like, oh, what happened? They're not sure what happened. Maybe the wind knocked it over. Maybe someone accidentally knocked it over. So they pick up the statue, and they put it back up next to the ark. And then the next morning they come and and the statue's fallen over again. But this time the head's broken off and the arms are broken off. So they know like something's going on. And then shortly after that, like all these plagues and diseases start hitting the Philistine people. And so they know that the ark, their, their possession of the ark has something to do with it. So they're so scared that they're like, we don't want the ark anymore. Let's return it to the Israelites. And eventually that's what they did. They, they found a way to just kind of Put it on a cart uh, with some, and have some animals like just walk it back to the Israelites because, you know, once again, it wasn't so much that the ark itself was so powerful, but the ark represented the presence of the holy God and the presence of the of the holy God, you know, caused these things to happen to the Philistine people. And so nowadays, you know, if you think about it, if it wasn't the ark itself that was significant, but rather the presence and power of God himself, the question is, since we don't have the ark, how are the presence and power of God seen today? And in answering this question, I want to just kind of remind us and and keep it in the context of the mission that was related um, by Pastor Chuck when we first began the book of Joshua. So if you remember back then, uh, back in uh, the, the beginning of this month, in Joshua 1, the people of, of or the Israelites were given a mission. Their mission was to enter the promised land. They were to do this in order to fulfill one of God's promises to Abraham that he gave Abraham back in Genesis 16. He promised Joshua and the people of Joshua in Joshua 1 that they were not to be afraid to enter the promised land because he would be with them. And that was their mission back then. But as Pastor Chuck stated in his sermon, is that that is not our mission now. We are not called to enter any promised land. Rather, we are called to be a blessing to all nations by fulfilling the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, as it says in Matthew 28. And just as God promised his presence to the Israelites back then to enter the promised land, so also in Matthew 28, he promises his presence to us as we go out and fulfill our mission, which is the Great Commission. And that's why he says, you know, at the end, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so in this context, how do we experience God's presence and power? As it relates to our mission once again of fulfilling the Great Commission, I would say we experience God's presence and power in two ways, the gospel 
and the Holy Spirit. The gospel and the Holy Spirit. The gospel, once again, is the good news that Jesus Christ came into this world to live a perfect life, die on the cross, and be resurrected so that we can be reconciled in our relationship with God. This is a message of power. This is a message of transformation. And that's why Paul could write in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then moving on to the Holy Spirit, in Acts 1.8, when Jesus gives his disciples another version of the Great Commission, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I also like what Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, when he says, beginning in verse 7, if I go, meaning if I leave you, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you will see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because of the, the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. And I like these passages because it reminds me that as I go out to be Christ's witness, I have God's presence with me and the Holy Spirit. And it's not that I have to think about or or, or be concerned about any fancy persuasive words that I might need to use to convince people. And as these verses state, it's the power of the Holy Spirit who will convict people of their sin and their need for Christ in their lives. So once again, just as God demonstrated his power to the Israelites through the ark as they fulfilled their mission to enter the promised land, so he demonstrates his presence and power for us today as we go out and fulfill our great commission through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And so as we think about this and, and kind of think about how to apply this passage, I want us to think about, you know, whether we do experience the presence and power of God in the gospel or through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit as we seek to fulfill our mission. And if we're not experiencing this, you know, maybe we might need to consider or recognize some of the expectations that God sets down in Joshua 3 to experience this. In verse 5, he tells the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And you know, I believe that God can and still does want to do amazing things through his people, through us, to help us fulfill our mission. But as Joshua states, we first have to consecrate ourselves. And this is what I would call a, kind of like a renewal process. For the people back then to consecrate themselves, they literally had to go and wash their clothes and put on clean clothes, and it also said to abstain from sexual relations. But these acts were just outward demonstrations of an internal cleansing that they were to have. You know, and as I was... Um, looking at and reading about some of the more recent revivals, I saw the important role that things like humility and repentance 
come and the, uh, the role that they had to play in these revivals. Like, for instance, there was a revival in Romania in the 1970s. When, and at the time, the countrymen ridiculed the Christians and they called them repenters because of the emphasis given to repentance. But God began to move a local, a certain church in a local region in Romania and the believers became serious about forsaking a lifestyle that was common to unbelievers. They, they gave up several things. They, they repented of these things. And soon, it says, revival broke out, and, and hundreds of people became believers, and they were baptized. And in more recent college revivals that took place across the nations in 1995, I remember this was going on when I was still in uh, at Trinity, and, and, and Trinity even experienced part of this. Um, it all started because two university students in Texas were moved to go up in front of a, uh, in front of a service to go and confess their sins. And after they confessed their sins, soon like dozens of other people began coming up to confess their sins. And then word of this got out and they started traveling and telling this to other uh, college campuses. And this was spreading around other college campuses. And before you know it, there were thousands of college students coming up in services across, the, across their colleges to come and confess their sins and repent before God. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's anything magical about getting up in public to confess your sins. But I do want us to think about, you know, just what verse 5 states when it says, Consecrate yourselves, because tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things for you. You know, I think there has to be some form of consecration or inward renewal before God can do these things through his people. And so that's the, that's the first um, aspect uh, that I would bring out. And then a the second application I would see from this passage is the example of the, of the priests and the willingness, or their willingness, to take risks. As I studied the passage further, I realized there may have been a very good chance that the priests were unaware beforehand what would happen when they stepped foot in the Jordan. I mean, true, Joshua does tell the people in verse 13 that when the priest step, step foot in the water, the waters are going to part and, and they're going to be able to cross. But I also noticed that in verse 6, he told the priest to take the ark and go on ahead of the people. So it's quite possible that the priest could have been ahead of the people outside of earshot when Joshua was giving later instructions to the people. And so here the priests are at the foot of the Jordan. And what's more, um, what's more, you know, in verse 15, the scripture tells us that the waters were at flood stage. The river had overflowed the banks, and as one commentator wrote, the river at this time could have been much wider than the normal 100 feet width and much deeper than the normal kind of 5 to 10 foot uh, depth. And so, and it's kind of as if one commentator put it, the waters were kind of daring the people to cross it. So here are the priests standing at the foot of the Jordan, carrying the ark, looking at the river raging. And all they heard from Joshua is this command that God gave to Joshua to tell the priest to go stand in the river. I mean, how are they to get 
into the river. And what would they do with the ark? Were they to lift it high over the shoulders to try and ensure that the ark wouldn't get wet? You know, how would they keep the ark from getting swept away by the raging rivers? I mean, no matter what the results they were, they may have been thinking, they heard the command to go into the water, and they did. And it wasn't until they stepped foot into the water that they saw the amazing act of God take place. You know, and when you think about it, you know, God could have just told Joshua and the people, you know, you're going to cross this river and watch, I'm going to part it for you. And he could have just parted it before the priest moved out. He could have just said, priest, you just stand here and wait and watch, I'm going to part the water for you. And, and they could have seen the water parted. But he didn't do that. He told the priest to go stand in the river. And it wasn't until they stepped foot in the river that the waters parted. And I think that's a lesson for us to learn that, you know, there could be many times when God wants to do amazing things through us or he wants us to see amazing things that he can do. But he's waiting for us to take that first step to show that we really trust him. For myself, and I often sense the leading of the Holy Spirit to go and try to engage in spiritual conversations with people. Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I mean, to be honest, it's something I never feel completely comfortable with. I always have fears about like what people might think, what the outcome could be, you know, if I try to engage in a conversation with these people. But I'll tell you that whenever I've gone ahead and taken that step of faith, I've never regretted it. Not that the conversation has always turned out good, not that the person like automatically became a Christian, but I've never regretted it. And I've often seen God work in ways that I wouldn't have expected before. And so I would encourage you, you know, if you're not really seeing amazing things in your role in fulfilling the Great Commission, maybe more so than God, the issue may be with you and maybe an unwillingness on your part to go put your foot in the water, to take that first step and, and allow God to respond. I mean, sure, the person may reject you. Sure, the conversation may not go as well as planned. But knowing most of our tendencies, you know, I don't think our problem lies in being too overzealous. I mean, I think quite the opposite. We're too timid. And we're not willing to go out on a limb for God in this area. And, you know, I believe the world needs to see amazing things that only God can do. In my own personal study time, I was reminded recently that what the world often witnesses are just devoted, committed Christians living a good life, or doing, or a church doing good things to serve God. You know, but they're not seeing things that only God can do. And because they are not seeing things that only God can do, they're not attracted to him. You know, they may say things like, oh, you know, he or she's a good Christian, he or she lives such a good life, but, you know, that's, that's really not my thing. Or, you know, this church does, does good work and good for them, but, you know, that's not really my game. But, you know, we need to do things to let the world see God at work. And when people see God at work, he will attract people to himself. And I want to get much more into this because um, Steve Coe's preaching next week on Joshua 4 
in, in, in the, I think, uh, 5 verse 1. And he'll, he'll probably speak more about this uh, in the next chapter. But suffice it to say, when God parted the Jordan River and the kings in Canaan heard about what happened, they knew it was only something God could do. And they reacted because of that. And so as we go forward in our mission, you know, may we go forward in a sense of wanting to be renewed before God and doing what it takes to consecrate ourselves so God can work through us. May we go with a willingness to take risks to advance God's kingdom. And in turn, may we see God do amazing things through us. And as people around us see things that only God can do, they will be attracted to God, and he will draw people to himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, this passage in Joshua where we see just your faithfulness and goodness and provision for the people. We thank you for your faithfulness and fulfilling your promise of bringing the people into the promised land. And accordingly, Lord, we, we recognize that our mission is not to enter the promised land, but our mission is to fulfill the Great Commission. And so, Lord, uh, let us rest in the assurance of your presence and power with us today as we go to fulfill the Great Commission. And may we uh, just seek to be consecrated before you and and be willing to do whatever it is you would ask us to do so that people can see you do amazing things through our lives. And in turn, they will know that you are God. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise with me as we respond together in worship.